0: Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950
1: WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams.
2: Well, welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. We do this show every weekend on AM 950 WTLN. Always look forward to having you with us. Uh, Jeff Sennis is our engineer. Andrew Herdliska produces this show each weekend for us. And uh, Jonathan Merritt joins us in this first half hour, senior columnist for Religion News Service. He's going to join us from Brooklyn, New York, and we're going to talk about his new book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined, Uh, Jonathan, so nice of you to join me. How are you
3: doing? I'm doing well. It's a pleasure to be with you. What
2: does the title of that book mean?
3: Yeah, I think that that the book is supposed to uh, speak to really a whole generation uh, of Americans who have found themselves a little bit dissatisfied with American Christianity. We found it outside of the Church, uh, as non-Christians have developed increasingly negative perceptions about those inside the Church. But also, we're finding that many inside the Church, particularly among the quote-unquote next generation, are leaving the Church in record numbers. And what I find is, is that most people outside of the Church or inside of the Church who who are increasingly dissatisfied with American Christianity are not so much dissatisfied with the biblical Jesus, that when they discover Jesus on his own terms in the pages of Scripture, they find that Jesus is actually much better than they imagined, or or maybe that, that the Jesus who exists in the pages of the Bible is much better than the Jesus who's been presented to them in uh, the political arena and in popular culture. And so what I hope to do with this book in some way, though it's very personal, it's not so much a- agenda-driven as it is story-driven, I really wanted to-, to show people this is the Jesus who actually exists, the one that we find not only in the Scripture, but also in real life, who's waiting to meet us in the everyday and all the time. And that Jesus is much better than the caricatures that you may have rejected.
2: Jonathan, I want you to talk about <clears throat> this emptiness epidemic. Uh, apparently you went through that, a, a spiritual drought. Uh, can you get into that topic? Is this a major issue in, in Christianity?
3: Well, I think it is. And and it is because of, uh, first of all, because of the the empirical data that I sort of uh, riffed on for a moment there, where when you see now that, that young people are, are leaving the church, In record numbers, uh, particularly in their college years. Uh, Many of them will never return to the Church. Outside of that, you've got this whole group of people that Pew Research calls the spiritual, but not religious. These are people who say, organized religion is not for me. Now what's interesting about that demographic, if you drill down, many of them still own Bibles, a majority of them say they pray regularly, most of them still say they believe in God, so it's not the rise of, of, of atheism in America, but rather the rise of people who are quite interested in spiritual things, but have been turned off by some of the popular perceptions of Christianity. And so they, they experience this emptiness. And I, I think I experienced that myself. I, I certainly described that in the first chapter of the book, having been raised in the Church and, and reaching a point where I just said, you know what, this, this whole following Jesus thing for me, has really become dry and predictable and rote, and I, I thought to myself, you know, I can keep following God uh, like I'm following God, but I suspicioned that we would end up like an old married couple sitting next to each other on the couch every evening, rarely speaking. We we would have stayed together, but maybe I would have wondered if I stuck around too long. And I thought, if I'm going to keep following Jesus, I, I want I want to encounter the Jesus. That I find in the Bible, this is a this is a God who shows up in floating axe heads and talking donkeys, who's telling all kinds of crazy stories with fascinating endings. A, a kind of God who likes to show up and surprise us in unexpected ways and at unpredictable times. And so I thought, I want to meet that God. I think that God actually exists. Mm. And so this book really gives the antidote to spiritual emptiness, which is discovering God in the everyday. The, all the time,
2: the spectacular and the mundane. Jonathan, you talk about in your book uh, ten encounters with Jesus. Um, I don't know whether we can cover them all, but let's let's start with the first one uh, that I read about. It was fascinating. It's simply called silence, and you have this silent retreat at a Benedictine desert monastery. Uh, tell us about that experience and what it meant to you.
3: Yeah, you know, when I think when uh, when I was. Starting to think about taking this spiritual expedition, this journey to encounter an unexpected God. I thought, where is the most unexpected place I would find God? And, and as I thought about it, I said, you know, as Western American Christians, when we want to encounter God, we make noise. We'll uh, we'll preach a sermon, or maybe we'll sing a, a song. We'll have a spiritual conversation. We'll speak a prayer. And I thought, what if I did the opposite? Wouldn't that be unexpected? What if rather than try to talk or sing or preach or pray, what if I took the psalmist at his word, if I was just to be still and know that he is God? Could it be that God would show up in that place and, and, and encounter me in a way that I had never imagined? And so I decided to go out to New Mexico. I went to a Benedictine monastery out there. It was called Christ in the Desert. It's literally in the middle of nowhere,
4: mm. uh,
3: no cell phone reception, and I took a 60-hour vow of silence. Mm. And what I found was when we stop talking and start listening, God shows up, and God's able to speak to us things in those moments that we might not hear otherwise.
2: How did you find out about that place?
3: You know, I had a, I had a very good friend uh, who lived out in Texas who called me and said, hey, I'm not going to be available in a few weeks. And I said, why not? She said, I'm going out to this monastery. And I said, Are you a monastery out in the mm. desert? Mm. I got to go. So I booked a plane ticket and headed out there. And and that's kind of how it all came together. It was really fascinating.
2: Mm. Then, Jonathan, you get into a, a a very, I would think, a very difficult topic simply called honesty. Uh, you've kept this secret that you've been sexually abused by an older boy Uh, Then in 2012, a gay blogger uh, exposes an incident online. And and, uh, wow, I I read that, and I said, Jonathan Merritt has just opened up his whole life here. Uh, Unbelievable. I salute you for it. Uh, What was going on, and how difficult was that? And what's been the response, Jonathan, to that particular story?
3: Yeah, you know, it's sort of interesting, because in the first chapter of the book, I, uh, I pray a prayer. And I just said, God, show up and surprise me. Mm. And one thing that I've learned through this, this this whole process, this whole journey, is be careful what you pray for, because uh, God just might show up and answer that prayer, and he might do it in a way that you didn't expect. I, in fact, I say in the book, if I had known how God would, would answer that prayer, I would never have prayed it. And it was sort of a, a subtle foreshadowing. To the chapter that you're referencing. In in this chapter, I I tell the story. I, I start out in in childhood in a uh, a period where uh, there was sexual abuse by an, an older boy who uh, lived in our neighborhood. Something I felt like uh, I could never tell anyone. In fact, it was an experience that I think uh, has implemented into my life certain messages and. and and a belief, beliefs that I'm alone, beliefs that others can't be trusted, uh, beliefs that no one will help me, uh, these are things that I've had to uh, now start unraveling in my life. Um, as part of this story, I, I also talk about kind of an adult struggle to understand my own sexual orientation. And I want to be careful, and I say this in the book, that I'm not, ne- I have no idea what connection those two things have? I'm not. I'm not making the assumption that anyone who is a quote unquote sexual minority has to have a, an abuse situation in their past. I can't tell you, you know, if this was indicative or if it was determinative. But you know, it's part of the same story—a story, a story uh, of sort of coming to understand my own uh, sexual orientation and wrestling with these things because I grew up in the evangelical church. I'm still in the evangelical church, and there are there are some uh, specific sexual norms that we accept as evangelicals, and so feeling like I could never share this. There was no safe space to talk about this.
2: Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan, stay with us. We've got to take a break. We're coming back. Jonathan Merritt, author of Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. I'm Pat Williams. It's the Power Hour, AM 950 WTLN in Orlando.
1: More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950
2: WTLN. Hello, this is John Butler Book, and I want to cordially invite you to listen to my radio talk show every Sunday evening from 8 to 9 p.m. You won't have to bring a loaf of bread or a jar of mayonnaise with you because we're not going to hand you any bologna. Just the meat of the word, the water of life. A page from the book, John Butler Book, right here on New 950 WTLN, every Sunday night from 8 to 9 p.m. I want to hear from you. Pick up the phone and call us. Exercise your First Amendment rights right away.
4: The following is an important notice to consumers who owe the IRS back taxes. The Internal Revenue Service is currently accepting reduced settlements and other favorable programs for consumers owing $10,000 or more in back taxes. With many consumers nationwide facing tax problems, this offered reduction and other relief options can help ensure your financial stability during our nation's recovery. This may result in your back taxes being reduced by thousands of dollars and all collection efforts against you stopped. If you have received notices in the mail, have your Wages being garnished or are under audit due to owing the IRS over $10,000, a toll-free line has been established to take your call and let you know what relief you qualify for. Potentially save thousands by calling now to learn and take advantage of these programs. For your free consultation, call 911 Tax Relief now at 1-800-279-7767. 1-800-279-7767. That's 1-800-279-7767. Are you looking for construction equipment? I've got just the source. Introducing AllEquip.com. AllEquip is the new way to buy used construction equipment online from the folks at Iron Planet. At AllEquip, you'll know exactly what you're buying thanks to the guaranteed inspection reports on all items. Then simply click it and buy it online with a no-haggle pricing. Great deals on scissor and boom lifts, skid steers, trenchers, backhoes, generators, forklifts, and more at AllEquip. A-L-L-E-Q-U-I-P.com.
1: Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat.
2: Jonathan Merritt has written a book. It's called Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. Uh, it's a good read, fascinating read. Uh, Faith Words put the book out. And, uh, Jonathan, we're talking about this uh, honesty issue. And I'm sorry about the break there, but I want you to pick it up and, uh, and keep talking to us.
3: Yeah, so, so if, uh, for those who have just joined, you know, we were, I was talking through a story of, of childhood sexual abuse and, and really an adult struggle to understand my own sexual orientation. And what is, uh, what's interesting, uh, about this, this story or where it takes, I think, a, a surprising turn is there was a brief encounter with, uh, a gay blogger a few years ago. In Chicago, when I was traveling, we had dinner. We had physical contact con- contact that went beyond the bounds of friendship. And it, though it only happened once, it was something that really haunted me. But again, feeling like you can never talk about these things, that no one will help you, that people can't be trusted. I just sort of held this inside. And several years after the incident, uh, this particular blogger wrote about it. Uh, online. Well, he at least insinuated it uh, that some things had happened. And that's when I was really faced with a decision. Uh, and I think so much of life, you know, my dad, one of your good friends, uh, he's been on this show before. He always told me growing up, it's not how you act that really matters in life. It's how you react. And I thought, okay, this is a critical juncture for me. How am I going to react to this? And the two options were, number one, to lie and say, this didn't happen, uh, sort of call the bluff. There was no proof that it had ever happened. Or the other option was to take the route of honesty. And the more I thought about it and prayed about it, even against uh, advice that I had gotten from some really well-meaning friends who were saying, kill the story, get out, Uh, toss these people under the bus. I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to opt for honesty. And I decided to tell not just the the things he was insinuating, but my whole story. And uh, it's been an incredibly liberating thing. One of the things that, that I've realized through this whole process is, and I'm still in the process in many ways of understanding this, of sorting through it, of asking what God demands and desires for me. One thing I've realized is, is the pain of telling the truth, of sharing our secrets with others, is always outweighed. By the freedom that we experience by sharing those secrets. And so I encourage people in this book to opt for honesty in their lives that they will actually find in those moments of honesty, in those spaces and places where they're actually sharing themselves with others, they'll find a Jesus there who is better than they imagined. The
2: third topic I want you to talk about, Jonathan, the impossible. And this is about visiting Haiti after the hurricane. Uh, what, what went on here? Why was that important to you?
3: Well, you know, it was interesting. I went down there, and it's, it's so fascinating. You know, you're talking about these stories, taking a vow of silence at a Benedictine monastery, or uh, this story that I'll tell about going to Haiti, this, this struggle to understand my sexual orientation. All of this happens in about a year. So, you know, I would reiterate to people, be careful what you pray for, because God just might show up and answer those things. But I, I took a trip to Haiti uh, just a couple months, actually, after I, I went out to the monastery and took that vow of silence. And while I was down there, I I experienced just uh, almost depression because Haiti can be, at first blush, for people who are unaccustomed to the environment, can be sort of a, a harrowing, even depressing place because there is poverty. There's great need. There are still people there who live in tent cities that have been set up by UNICEF who are living just in unbelievable poverty. And while I was down there, uh, we were held at gunpoint by Haitian bandits, and and I thought I had. I remember having a gun to my head and thinking, "I'm going to die," mm. and just praying, "God, you know, be with my mother because she will she'll not understand what has happened here." Uh, you know, come to find out, to sort of spoiler alert, we we bribed our way back to to freedom and. And everything kind of worked out. But what I realized is, is that there are things we learn when we are facing impossible circumstances. Not just, not just being in a gaggle um, a, 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 a of bandits out in the jungle with a, a gun to your head, but also an impossible situation like what we're facing on a much larger scale in Haiti. That when we're careful to look for God in those places, when we're awake and aware and not merely shocked by the impossibility, that we can actually see glimmers of God in those places that we might not have seen otherwise. And so what I really encourage people is, is, is to, to ask themselves, what are those situations of impossibility in your own life? Where is the marriage that you think is, is destined to fall apart? Where is that broken relationship that you think will never be brought back together? Where is that, that crushing debt that you carry on your shoulders? And, and how can we, in those situations, even if we try to live out what God has called us to do, how can we experience and encounter God in a new way? And I think we can encounter God in the impossible, in, in the impossible situations in life in ways that will really blow our minds.
2: Jonathan, I want you to tell me another story. Uh, sacrilege. One of the most surprising places to find Jesus is in Sister Louisa's Ping-Pong Emporium in Atlanta. What, what what was going on? Yeah. What happened here?
3: You know, it's so funny and and so shocking. But I uh I discovered a place in Atlanta's old fourth ward called Sister Louisa's House of the Church in ping pong emphorium. And it's a it's a place that that for, almost treats sacrilege like a sport. Uh everything is religious themed. There are religious icons everywhere. Uh there are uh, there's a confessional where people can place confession on cert- certain nights of the week. They have pews around the ping-pong tables. There's even uh, Wednesday night, you can, you can come and, and preach uh, about what it is that, that sort of bothers you about religion. And so I just remember walking in and feeling incredibly offended, mm. because these things are precious to me. Uh, God is precious to me. These things are holy and sacred to me. But as I sat there to reflect, what I could hear is, is a subtle cry, for a true encounter with God. That that these individuals were criticizing uh, encounters with a God who I don't think actually exist, or their malformations, or incorrect expressions of God, or or pictures of God. There was a a picture of a lady uh, in the 1950s with a tall beehive hair. And it said, the higher the hair, the closer to God, which, if you think about it, it sort of, um, it, it sort of criticizes the, the, the arrogance, the, the, the sort of uh, country club environment that you encounter in many churches. There was a, uh, there was a picture of Jesus uh, sitting uh, on a seashore, and he said, I can see Russia from my mm-hmm. rock, which is sort of a criticism of the political alignment that we've we found in many churches. And so I began to reflect, rather than to be offended, and what I found was, is that in that place, there were actually uh, criticisms that revealed in my own heart, places where I had been practicing religion, or presenting a God who doesn't actually exist to the world, and there were places there where I think God was saying, here's an area where I can shape your heart, change your heart, and, and bring it into alignment with a true expression of God. And so I think that places of sacrilege can be places of great opportunity. Not that we seek these places out or, or we, we want to be in places like that all the time, but in, in, a, in a world like we're living right now, in a culture like we live in, where you're going to naturally encounter sacrilege in, in television and films, in, film, in, in uh, even in school classrooms. The question is, is how can we use those places to allow God to speak things to us that God might not be able to speak to us in other places and spaces?
2: We've covered four of your stories, Jonathan, and uh, we've got about five minutes left. Uh, Of the remaining six stories, uh, tell me or talk to us about your favorite or your most interesting of these final six.
3: You know, I, I think one for me would have to be, Uh, encountering Jesus in tragedy. Uh, There's a story in this book of my friend Hannah. My friend Hannah I met several years ago and introduced her to another friend of mine named Mark, and they instantly fell in love. Mm. Uh, Eventually they got married. Hannah was a strong woman. She had survived uh, several bouts with leukemia. It's just uh, was a wonderful human being. And while they were still newlyweds, having been married for less than two years... Uh, Hannah contracted a rare flesh-eating bacteria Mm. and ended up in a hospital in sepsis. And for four months, I had to walk with uh, Mark through this uh, this period of great suffering. Uh, She eventually had both arms and both legs amputated. Mm. They had to revive her multiple times. It became a national news story. And at the end of it all, Hannah passed away. And having to work through okay, I can find God in the good times, but where do you find God in a place like this that seems so hopeless and so dark and so depressing, where there's almost nothing that you can say is is positive in that situation? And I found that, that when I looked at Hannah, I thought, this is not the end of her story. Hannah's story continues on. Hannah's impacted hundreds of people. Uh, through the story of her own hope and faith in Christ that's been told again and again and again, there are things that Mark has experienced in the midst of this tragedy that he wouldn't have experienced otherwise. And I realize that we often ask the wrong question in tragedy, that the question we should ask is not why. Why are these things happening? Because even if we find an answer, it won't be good enough. The question is who? Who walks with us through these difficulties? Who is there with us to bring us comfort in the midst of tragedy? And I think that when we, when we stop looking for the why, and we start instead searching for the holy who, we will find, in those moments of incredible tragedy, a Jesus who really is better than we imagined.
2: Wow. Tell me this, what does your dad think of this book?
3: You know, there were some difficult parts for him to read, because the book is so raw and real and personal. But, you know, overall, it's been in an incredible way for us to have some unbelievable conversations about, about life, about God, about faith, uh, which I think, again, goes back to a previous message in the book. When you're honest, when you can get honest with someone like your father, your sister, your brother, your cousin, your neighbor, your best friend, God can work in those situations to draw you close with, not only with others, but with himself in ways that he couldn't have otherwise.
2: Jonathan, let's go back to the very beginning of this interview, when I asked you about this emptiness epidemic. So, to listeners tonight who might be dealing with this—a spiritual drought—what uh, do you tell them to do? Go go to Haiti? No, uh, I tell go them go to the go I to the tell- desert. I mean, wh- what's your advice?
3: <laughs> you know, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you have to go to the desert to encounter silence. I don't think you have to have a friend die of a rare flesh-eating bacteria to encounter tragedy. And I certainly don't think you have to go to Haiti to encounter a seemingly impossible situation. Most of us encounter these types of things or have opportunities for them every day of our lives. And so the message of the book is, is that, yes, God can show up in the spectacular, but God also shows up in the mundane, that God can show up in the unique, but also in the everyday and the all the time. And so the call of this book is to maintain a posture of being spiritually awake and spiritually aware that there is the same God who showed up in in floating axe heads and water from desert rocks and burning bushes that never burn up, shows up in our everyday lives, if only we're willing to live awake and aware to that God's presence.
2: What's next for you, Jonathan? What's uh, what's exciting for you in your pipeline?
3: Well, I will continue to uh, I'll continue to write religious columns. I'm, I'm writing regularly for Religion News Service and also for the Week magazine. Uh, but I'm kind of playing around with an idea for another book. We'll we'll see how that shapes up. I don't have a a title for it yet, but. But something I think that will incorporate this this new chapter of my life, living in New York City, I mean a son of a Southern Baptist minister who spent his life in Atlanta, Georgia, living in brooklyn new york you you can't help but learn some really fascinating and unique things, not just about life but also about God when you make a transition like that.
2: Are you happy in brooklyn
3: i you know i love I love Brooklyn because, because it's such a a diverse place that you can find. Whatever version you want here. And so my version is probably, probably a little less Jerry Seinfeld and probably a little more NYPD Blue. Jonathan Barrett has been our guest.
2: We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN.
1: More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN. Help your child or grandchild become a well-rounded, moral, and successful adult with a Christ-centered education. Private Christian schools across the country have agreed to reduce their tuitions so families can enroll a student at up to half the cost. Set your sights a little higher and help your student grow closer to the Lord. To find a school in your area and request a voucher, visit DiscountTuitionProgram.com. DiscountTuitionProgram.com is a service of Salem Communications.
4: Here's Martin Renforth, president of
0: Above and Beyond AC. When you purchase any system or service from Above and Beyond AC, I'll send a check to your church for 10% of your purchase. No matter how large or small, I'll send 10% of the purchase directly to your church. That's the Above and Beyond 10% promise. At Above and Beyond AC, we know you have a lot of AC companies to choose from. We hope you'll choose us, but we encourage you to get two quotes. You'll find that our pricing is always transparent and competitive.
5: Call 407-483-7945 right now to schedule a no-cost replacement estimate for your air conditioning needs. That's 407-483-7945 for Above and Beyond AC.
0: Remember the Above and Beyond 10% promise. When you purchase any system or service from Above and Beyond AC, we'll send a check to your church for 10% of your purchase.
5: Call 407-483-7945 right now to schedule a no-cost replacement estimate for your air conditioning needs. Call 407-483-7945.
1: Listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat.
2: Jonathan Merritt was our guest in that first half hour, senior columnist for Religion News Service. We talked about his new book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. Uh, Jonathan joined us from Brooklyn. We're going to stay in the Northeast. We're in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, to talk to J.R. Briggs. Creator of the Epic Fail Pastors Conference, his new book is out with IVP. It's called "Fail: Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure." Jr., thanks for joining me. How you doing?
6: Thanks. for having me, Pat. Good to be with you.
2: So kind of a kind of a harsh title here. Is failure in ministry a major crisis, Jr.? It's a, is it a big deal?
6: One of the things in the research for this book that we found, some of the statistics were incredibly. Sobering, and I cried, actually, as I found out some of the statistics with pastors, just to name a few of them that impacted me deeply. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry for good each month in America due to burnout or contention in their churches. Uh, for every 20 pastors who go into ministry, only one retires from ministry. Mm. Um, 80% of pastors, and just slightly higher than that, for spouses, are discouraged in their roles as pastors. So some of these are just incredibly sobering, and uh, we needed space. That's, I needed space to talk about that in my own life, and I couldn't find it. So we accidentally created this uh, event called the Epic Fail Pastors Conference to help address some of these issues.
2: Well, we've got uh, about 11 fascinating topics to get into here, Jr. so let's get started. Uh, you yeah. start your book uh, with a title just called Failure. The Trigger of Our Biggest Fears. Uh, what what are you writing about here? What, what How do we start? What's that about?
6: Yeah, oftentimes uh, we worship at the altar of success, especially in our North American context. And this is uh, not something that the Church is immune to. And so oftentimes, for pastors especially, uh, who are perceived oftentimes as the uh, professional Christians paid to love Jesus, we have to really be careful about success and how we measure that, because how you define success will define you, and that's for every human being. And so we have to be careful that the way Jesus uh, describes the kingdom, and as we read about in the Gospels, what is Jesus's understanding of success? And then we have to ask, does my metric of success match that uh, to what, what Jesus established as his metric. And so, you know, the business world has a, a whole set of metrics of success and how we measure that. And unfortunately, the church has uh, has fallen prey to that and adopted many of those and how we measure success in our church context. Um, so success isn't bad inherently. There's nothing wrong with, with success, but the motives that drive us, the ambition behind our desire for success is what, what we have to ruthlessly, uh, honestly engage in uh, with the motivations of our own hearts.
2: Why do you call success the golden calf of the American Church?
6: Yeah, yeah, because as I, as I mentioned oftentimes that uh, we, we raise that up as being such a high level of priority, and in the book I talk about uh, the metric that we do measure oftentimes from the business world, what, what I and others have called the three B's of church success, buildings, bodies, and budget. And it's easy to believe that if we have more bodies, our tenants is up, we have bigger buildings, or are doing a building campaign, or our budget is up compared to last month or last year, on, we've got a pretty successful church. And if we're not doing those things, if we have less bodies and less buildings and less budget, then maybe the guy down the street or even where we were a year ago, we must be failing. And those can be measurements, but when we only use those as a way of assessing our quote-unquote success, I prefer the word health in talking about uh, local church context, but if we use that to measure success, it can be rather dangerous.
2: Now I want you to talk about faithfulness, redefining the metric of ministry.
6: Yeah. Yeah, and, and instead of the three Bs, oftentimes it's been said the three Fs may be a better way to talk about it, faithfulness, fulfillment, fruitfulness, because those are often uh, kingdom kingdom language and kingdom metrics. But, you know, I'm grateful that Jesus will never say at the end of our lives, well done, good, and successful servant. He will say, if we have that, well done, my good and faithful servant. And I look at someone like Jeremiah, you know, God gave a call to Jeremiah Uh, Before he was born, he told, and he said, basically, no one's going to listen to you, uh, but I want you to do what I'm calling you to do, and you're going to have a very difficult time because of it. Thrown in the stocks, mocked and ridiculed, um, saw the destruction of Israel happen under his watch. No one listened to him. He was thrown in his cisterns, left to die. If it weren't for people pulling him out, he would have died. And all that to say he did everything that God asked him to do. And sometimes God gives us big um, plots of land to till, and sometimes they're rather small. But uh, I love in the parable of the talents. Uh, he said to the, the man with one talent and the one with two talents, he told him the same thing. You did well. What's been entrusted with you, I'll entrust more to you. And so it's the faithfulness behind whatever has been given to us, not you know how large it was and. Jesus will never say to us, what did you do with what I didn't give to you? But he will say, what did you do with what I have given to you? And so we have to be very careful that we aren't just driven by numbers and metrics. And the you analogy know, that I use um, in the book would be like going to visit the doctor. Uh, certainly there are there are numbers that we look at. You know, you get on a scale and there's blood pressure and height and weight and all that that the nurse. Uh, looks at, records on your chart, compares to your last time that you've been visiting, but the nurse won't say, okay, we have your numbers, you can go home now. Uh, No, you wait there until you get a chance to speak with the doctor, and the doctor then asks, tell me your story. In other words, what's wrong? I'm not feeling very well. I've got a bad cold. Uh, The doctor also draws on his or her own expertise, tongue depressors and it's in your ear and listens to your heart and your chest and, those sorts of things, and then based on experience, and works to help you in that. And I think that's probably a better, more robust understanding of how we might measure success or health. Some of it is numbers, but some of it is stories and expertise and relationships. And I think we have to be aware of that in in our churches and not just be driven by the three P's.
2: Now let's talk about shame, J.R. J.R. Um, Briggs is our guest. The book is called Fail – by the way, Eugene Peterson wrote the foreword, Shame, the Swampland of the Soul. What What is uh, the Swampland of the Soul, Jr.
6: Yeah, shame is, a, as we all know, a very powerful motivator uh, in our lives, and it grips us deeply. And uh, in the midst of my own uh, story and brokenness and coming out of a very difficult ministry season, I realized that this failure-rejection-shame continuum is something that, uh, is in each one of us. And and for me, I thought my biggest fear in life was failure, only to realize surely thereafter my biggest fear, I thought, was rejection that happened after I failed. And so I finally stumbled upon my greatest fear in life and that shame that happens when I've been rejected after I've failed. And all of us need to wrestle with uh, this idea of shame, because if we don't handle it appropriately, we can begin Not only to be imprisoned ourselves, but actually use shame as a manipulator and motivator in other people's lives. And pastors, we have to deal with, and Christian leaders, we have to deal with this idea of shame at its uh, deepest root, because if we don't, we will inflict that hurt and shame on other people. And Jesus came to rescue us from that shame. And, um, You know, he interrupts that process of failure, rejection, shame, instead of fight or flight, like we often hear. When we yield or we submit ourselves to to Jesus, then what he does is he, instead of rejects us, he accepts us through the good news of Jesus. And then we are, instead of shamed, we are an honored child of the King. And if we can move from feeling shame, of yielding to Jesus, to eventually being... Uh, realizing the truth that we are honored children of the King. That is at the very heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's the power of the good news of Jesus.
2: Next topic loneliness, the temptation to wear our masks.
6: Yeah. Yeah. The statistics in this area, are particularly sobering as well with uh, pastors, uh, a vast majority of them. Uh, when surveyed, uh, pastor said, "I don't have a single close friend," and uh, ministry can be quite lonely. And uh, because of that, pastors don't always know what to do with that. And as one pastor told me just a few weeks ago, I was in his office, and when he's going through a very lonely time himself, he said, "You know, as a pastor, what I need is people who don't need me." And he said, "I don't know where to find that. Um, I need people where I can just be totally honest and let my hair down." And we all experience loneliness, but I think there's just this unique uh, calling that pastors have that can oftentimes lead to isolation. And the evil one loves isolation. When we're isolated, that's when we're most vulnerable, and he loves that fact, because the evil one loves to, to, to pounce on us in that. And so what God does is he creates community, this idea of the Church, to keep us from isolation as one of his greatest tools against the evil one. And so... When we're lonely, we all are able to pick up the mask, uh, any mask, really, and try to cover ourselves in that. And uh, with pastors, we can create all sorts of ornate masks, and some of those masks could be, I'm the theologically educated one mask, or I'm the spiritually mature one mask, or I'm not hurt, that doesn't bother me mask, or... um, you know, I'm just like everyone else. Or I'm, I'm the super busy mask is a big one. Um, but the one that's most dangerous, I think, is the, the see how vulnerable I am mask, where we're just vulnerable enough that people think we're really being authentic, but we actually really are trying to manipulate people by wearing a veiled mask to not really tell them who we are, but just enough that they actually respect us.
2: J.R. Briggs is the author of Fail, Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure. He uh, joins us from the suburbs of Philadelphia. Next topic, wounds, shattered dreams, grief, and mourning.
6: Yeah, in this in this portion of the book, uh, I had a friend of mine, Dr. Steve Burrell, and Steve had done his uh, dissertation research on amoral ministry failure. And uh, it's the largest study done. It had, had not been published on uh, pastors that had failed, not for moral reasons, but for what he coined amoral reasons. So they just ran out of money, or they were fired unexpectedly, or they had health issues, or um, they just tried to plant a church, and it just failed. They had to shut their doors. And he did. He found all sorts of research in the midst of this brokenness and wounds stories and found those that responded well and helpfully and were able to bounce back from failure and those that did not. And he found some significant um, uh, research on, and trends on what worked and what didn't, even in the midst of the wounds. And uh, it was incredibly fascinating to learn that from Steve, and Steve was kind enough to let me include that in the book. Um, And talking about our wounds is not necessarily fun, but it can be, when handled appropriately, very therapeutic and very healing. And so we have to avoid the two gutters when we talk about wounds. One is that we wallow in our wounds, and woe is me and this hopeless existence, and that's no fun. On the other end, we also have to be careful not to end up in the other gutter, and that's give $5 answers to some million-dollar questions about our pain, where we slap pithy Christian statements or little Band-Aids on deep wounds, that's not helpful either. And so finding an appropriate middle ground that's both raw and real, uh, that leads us in the direction of hope. And I think the Psalms are a good place in the midst of our woundedness to go. There's not one emotion left unturned uh, or unaddressed in the Psalms. And it can be training wheels for our prayers in the midst of a deep time of wounds.
2: The next topic I want you to talk about, Jr., is simply called wilderness. And uh, we're going to get to that when we uh, come back after the break. Uh, just a reminder, you're listening to J.R. Briggs uh, from Lansdale, Pennsylvania. His book is called Fail, Finding Hope and Grace in the Midst of Ministry Failure. And uh, we will continue with Jr. Uh, Just a reminder that you are listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. It's AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. We do this show every weekend and always appreciate your joining us and always look forward to our visits. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment
1: on the new 950 WTLN.
0: Rain is in the forecast, which means slippery conditions, unexpected twists, and muscle pain are too. Better get prepared by picking up a can or two of Salon Paws Jet Spray. Salon Paws Jet Spray has two powerful pain-fighting ingredients that you spray right where it hurts. It goes on clear, dries fast, and relieves pain for hours and hours. Look for the blue can with the blue cap. Salon Paws. Powerful relief when and where you need it. Use as directed.
5: With a Sam's Club membership, you get incredible savings every time you shop. See how much you can save at Sam's Club with new lower prices on items like 50 pounds of Simply Right dog food for just $17.98. A three-pack of Dawn Total Clean for $7.98. A Tresemme Twin Pack for ten eighty-six, dollars and much more. Join by August 3rd and get a welcome package worth up to $20. Join and save Sam's Club. Life is better when you're in the club. See club for details. As parents, we're responsible for more than just providing the necessities for our children. We are charged with giving them a strong foundation for life. And Family Christian Center School in Claremont can help. FCCS is accredited with advanced ed and offers a blended curriculum for grades kindergarten through 12th grade. FCCS, where the highest principles of education are focused on Christian leadership, self-discipline, individual responsibility, integrity, and good citizenship. The FCCS faculty are highly qualified teachers who are followers of Christ and dedicated student advocates, as well as parent partners. Small class sizes mean more personal attention for your child. FCCS is currently accepting applications for this fall. You can call them at 352-241-0323. That's 352-241-0323. Or you can go online at FCCSchools.com. Schedule your personal tour today.
1: You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat.
2: I'm delighted to have J.R. Briggs with us, uh, author of the book Fail. And uh, the next topic, J.R., is simply called Wilderness, Stumbling with Jesus in the Wasteland.
6: Yeah, wilderness is a very uh, paradoxical theme throughout the scriptures. You know, No one chooses the wilderness. It seems that the wilderness oftentimes chooses us. And we want to learn the lessons that can be learned in the wilderness without actually going through the wilderness. But it's very disappointing to realize that's not oftentimes how God works. And uh, failure is this beautiful gift that's wrapped in a very ugly package, and the wilderness is one of those tangible expressions of that. And, uh know, the wilderness is that one place where the only way you survive is if God is present with you. And we see all throughout Scripture that God uses wilderness, and He uses caves as a way of healing and resurrection. And uh, in the wilderness, we often think about it as the sandy deserts in the movie, but wilderness in the Middle East, in and around Israel, is very craggy. It's very dangerous. Scorching heat, some of the animals that are there, but with no water, if you don't have God's presence, you don't survive. It's never fun. But people come out on the other side. God uses these people through wilderness experiences. Obviously, the Israelites, you know, Moses, you know, Jesus was in the wilderness uh, before his ministry began. Uh, God seems to use that really ugly place, that really scary place that leaves an ache in our souls as a way of bringing us out on the other side. Now, what's interesting with the Israelites, you know, as they're in their spiritual and geographic wilderness on the way to the promised land, What's alarming to me as I read this story is that God is not really in any particular hurry to get them out of the wilderness. God seems to be much more concerned about the transformation going on inside of them as they're journeying through the wilderness than about avoiding the wilderness altogether. And we're aware of our limitations in the wilderness. And the paradox of that, in the midst of all these people, Abraham, Sarah, Leah, Rachel, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, all these that went to the wilderness, is that we think it's punishment. But if you look at that Exodus story, it says that God sent them into the wilderness before they had sinned. And the wilderness is that grace-laced scaffolding for our souls sometimes, if we can see it as as such. But that detail is really important. It states in Deuteronomy that, that God led them into the wilderness. It was God's direction to bring them to the wilderness. And he led his people there as an immense act of grace, as a way of teaching them things that they wouldn't forget once they got to the promised land. And I think that's an important thing because we immediately think of punishment when we think of the wilderness.
2: The next topic, J.R., J.R. Briggs is our guest, recovery the excruciating process of letting go, uh, and you did this with Dr. Stephen Burrell.
6: Yeah, yeah Steve, uh, again, continued uh, uh, to share some of his research and re-entry, and some of the wisdom, he, he interviewed a lot of failed and wounded pastors that came out on the other side and said, what advice would you give to other pastors that are in the midst of pain or failure or brokenness right now? And the first thing he said, is share, they said, well, share your experience. If you keep it bottled up, it's going to eat you a lot. But your recovery involves sharing that with the close companions and friends, mentors, coaches, spiritual directors. Um, And and that was the other thing they said, have a guide who can walk alongside of you as a spiritual director or a coach. Um, That was a big key to their health and recovery. Um, They also encouraged those pastors to take care of their families. Pastors who recovered were very deliberate to really shepherd their family even while they were hurt and wounded. And they also gave themselves themselves permission to grieve. They didn't just try to sweep it under the rug. They let themselves grieve in that recovery process. They also were engaged in specific practices that probably won't surprise us. They were engaged in reading the scriptures. They continued to pray. Um, they... They really wanted to listen to God. And a very practical thing, uh, lastly, is they attended another congregation. Though it was a local church that was the cause of their deep pain, they still wanted to be connected to a congregation, almost entirely not the one they just left, but maybe in a surrounding town or community where they could be back row people for a while just to recover and heal And um, that was a very healing time for for those pastors that needed that, Uh, in addition to just having a very teachable spirit and a hopeful look to the future that God wasn't done with them yet, that God still had something up his sleeve for them in terms of—it may not be vocational full-time ministry, but God wasn't done with them yet, and they were willing to be open to what God might have in store
2: recovery, learning to re-enter the atmosphere. Again, Steve Burrell helps you here, Jr. Yes, yeah,
6: indeed. And some of the observations that really surprised Steve in that process, there were a few of them, and some of them startled me when he shared them with me. Um, The first one was that there seemed to be a 7- to 14-month recovery window for pastors, that it wasn't right away, and it wasn't 10 years down the road. He happened to notice when he asked when did you feel like your heart was back? When did you feel hopeful again? You notice that almost all of them fell in that seven to fourteen month window of recovery time, which is really interesting because the Jewish people, when a family member dies, they have a required twelve month period of grieving that happens, and it's kind of interesting that it falls within that particular time frame. It seems that our souls need a long runway to catch up with the reality of the experiences that we've had, especially painful ones. Um, The second thing that surprised Steve and and I was that uh, the relationships with non-Christians were vitally important in this process. They were able to engage with non-Christians, and God, in his great irony, allowed those non-Christians to, in a sense, really care for these pastors who were so hurt. And it gave them a love again for those who were far from God to want to minister to them and to see them in relationship with, with God. Uh, which was which was very ironic, but he got in his great sense of humor how he worked. And the other one is that people had significant and deeply meaningful God where They can actually many people could trace back to a time where God tapped them on the shoulders, oftentimes with great emotion that they showed of seeing God's love flood into their hearts, or the Holy Spirit prompted or whispered, you're going to be okay, I still love you. And it was a very emotional experience. So some of that research um, along the way is why, why what Steve has done is just incredibly valuable.
2: Acceptance. A kiss from God on our bruisers. That's the tenth topic, Jr.
6: Yeah, it sure is. It sure is. That acceptance takes a while, but... Uh, One of the things I found in in the research for this is uh, a a Japanese art form called wabi-sabi. It's very fun to say, but it's a beautiful expression of the gospel, where normally in our context, if we had a teapot or a vase that would break, we would very carefully take clear glue and try to piece it back together and hide maybe some of the cracks. But in wabi-sabi, what they would do is actually in the glue, they would take gold dust and they would sprinkle it into the glue, and then repair that vase or that teapot to highlight the cracks, believing that it actually made the pot or the vase more beautiful, not less beautiful. And I think in many ways that's the story of Jesus with us, is instead of hiding our cracks and our brokenness, the good news actually can highlight it in such a way that actually makes it more beautiful when it's infused with the gospel. And um, there are two Greek words for time used throughout Scripture, chronos and kairos. Chronos, chronology, where we think about Tuesday at 345 in the afternoon. But chronos, or kairos, is much more about moments. Is moments that are pregnant with possibility that make us bitter or better, but they refuse to leave us the same. And failure is always a kairos moment. And it can be a time where we grow really bitter and it ruins us. Or it can be a moment where we accept it for what it is, whether it's our fault or someone else has inflicted hurt or brokenness on us, and to say I want to enter into this and say Jesus I need you here JR Briggs
2: has been our guest we've got a wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday evening power hour AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams power
1: hour in just a moment on the new 950 WTLN
2: Hello, everybody. Alan Thicke here. You know, our nation's tax laws change every year. The one constant is you have to pay them. Now, if you're one of those millions of Americans who owes back taxes, you know that the IRS is cracking down. They can garnish your paycheck, levy your bank accounts, even your home or business could be up for grabs. But here's the good news. They're offering a new way out. It's called the Fresh Start Initiative, a government program for tax debt forgiveness. You could qualify for a settlement that's substantially less than before these changes. And nobody knows this program better than the experts at Optima Tax Relief. Their attorneys and enrolled agents will work to get you the best deal possible. Optima Tax Relief is accredited by the Better Business Bureau. Call them now for a free consultation.
4: Call 800-711-5743. That's 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com.
1: You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat.
2: I appreciate you joining me for the Power Hour. We do it every weekend on WTLN. Our guest in the first half hour, Jonathan Merritt from Brooklyn, talking about his book, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. And then J.R. Briggs was with us from Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Uh, His new book is out. It's simply called Fail. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. The Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And I'd like you to check out my most recent book that I've written. It's called How to Be the Ultimate Teammate." Uh, It is available through Amazon.com. That's probably the best way to order this book, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Far more than a sports book, and uh, I think you'll find it to be be of value. In the meantime, have a great morning tomorrow at church with your family, and then we are uh, back here next weekend for more good discussion, and we're always happy when you join us for the Pat Williams Saturday Evening Power Hour. You're listening to AM 950 WTLN in Orlando.
1: Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason, the new 950 WTLN.